The Tom Woods Show, episode 1143. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Homeschooling parents, if you're running yourself ragged, it's time to switch to the self-taught Ron Paul curriculum. You get to keep your mental health and your children will get an outstanding education. Plus $160 worth of free bonuses when you join through my special link, ronpaulhomeschool.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. We're going to talk today about Eastern Europe. We're going to talk about Bulgaria in particular, but also Eastern Europe in general in the decades following the collapse of the Soviet Union. What is the status of liberty and statism in Eastern Europe and what are the prospects? A lot of fun questions, interesting questions to ask. Our guest, Stoyan Panchev, who teaches economics at Sofia University. He is also the founder and chairman of the Bulgarian Libertarian Society, which is actually a big group. They have big demonstrations and they put on uh, very important and successful events. He's also a member of the executive board of European Students for Liberty, and he is regional director for ESFL for Southeastern Europe, and he is a weekly commentator on Bulgarian television. Stoyan, welcome to the show. Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. I would like to ask you about a whole bunch of things relating to Eastern Europe, but let's start with Bulgaria in particular. My guess is that most Americans, parentheses, including myself, don't know that much about the history of Bulgaria. We, we just think of it as being part of Eastern Europe and being at one time behind the Iron Curtain, but I don't know the, the fundamental story. How is, it, how is it the same and how is it different from, let's say, countries we might be more familiar with like uh, Poland because of the Solidarity Movement? We, we learned an awful lot about that. Um, how was the experience of Bulgaria the same or different from other uh, Eastern European communist countries? So I would say that what is different is that uh, we were one of the favorites of the USSR. So uh, we would get a lot of concessions from, from the Union, from the Soviet Union. And uh, uh, we were considered the, the, the next republic to join the Union. Actually, there were I think there were negotiations between our dictator, uh, Todor Zhivkov, and, and uh, Soviet Union leaders to, to basically have Bulgaria as, as the next republic to join the Soviet Union. Um, the other thing is that... Uh, we had better climate and uh, it was kind of considered the place to go to the seaside if you were uh, part of the Eastern Bloc. So if you want to go to have a, ho- a holiday and uh, and you don't want to travel to Cuba, you should go to Bulgaria. So these are the two things that kind of separate us from the rest, I guess. Do you mind if I ask how old you are? I'm almost 30 now. I was born in 1988. So I, I don't remember much of, the, of, of, uh, of socialism. But I've seen what happens afterwards. And, and what, what is actually different in, in terms of economics is that we didn't get to, to change much from the system up until 1998. We didn't privatize up until then. Uh, and also we had a huge hyper, hyperinflation crisis in the late uh, 90s as well. So, so we basically kept a lot of the system intact. And that's why currently Bulgaria is uh, the poorest country in the European Union. We are members of the European Union, we, but we are the poorest country because we delayed reforms for much longer compared compare to, to other Eastern European countries. What did the process of privatization consist of? Well, it's um, it's it's a messy thing. Uh, privatization 
doesn't have a good name in Bulgaria right now you know, with a lot of people, especially older people, because uh, there was a lot of uh, involvement from the old communist structure. So you would have people who are high up in the security apparatus, you would have people who are high up in the communist party, then using that leverage, uh, using the fact that they were actually kind of prepared for the downfall. Uh, to grab a lot of this capital uh, when when it was transferred from 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 the government to to private ownership, so it was a messy process. There was a, there was a lot of fraud, a lot of corruption. So people really don't like this period of time, um, and and also in, in particular in Bulgaria, our privatization came uh, much much uh, uh, much later. So that that uh, really. Uh, didn't benefit the, the the companies or the assets that were sold because you, they had more years of of degradation and, and regression into 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 companies that couldn't work on a, on a market on an actual uh, living market that isn't the 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 system within the Soviet Union uh, sphere of influence. You mentioned that older folks are somewhat unsympathetic to the idea of privatization. Now that could. Maybe it's because they, it's, it's not a pure privatization and it's had negative consequences. But do you sense any kind of nostalgia for the old days of socialism? Oh, the, the, there is huge nostalgia. There is huge nostalgia in, in Bulgaria uh, about, about the times uh, uh, in the past particularly about socialism, because, um, you know, I think part of it is because people are just nostalgic about, about their years uh, of youth and, uh, uh, you know, all the things they did when they were younger. Uh, but uh, one, of the, one of the things that the, the Communist Party was good at was propaganda, you know, and the propaganda kind of painted a, a picture that... Uh, that's stuck in people's minds, and and they and and later on, I think in the in, I think it was in the eighties that that people kind of started kind of started realizing that uh, people are having it better elsewhere, uh, and you know I think it's it's a combination of both. People have that, but it's again it's mostly older people, uh, and it's not all not not all older people because uh, a, lot, a lot of Bulgarians still remember uh, the. Um, the, the labor camps, they still remember the, the, even the murders that happened after, after the, the Soviet Union occupied Bulgaria in, uh, that, that happened when, when the Second World War happened, uh, uh, was over. And, and, uh, basically Stalin, Roosevelt and, and Churchill, uh, uh, kind of decided that Bulgaria is going to, to be part of the Soviet Union sphere of influence. And people remember what happened. People remember how 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 we had killings, we had executions, we had stolen property, uh, and uh, at the end of it, in '89, uh, we had an uh, economy that doesn't work. We had people who were desperately poor, and yeah, and we had a system that did basically failed. When you say that Bulgaria was in the Soviet sphere of influence, which it obviously was, what does that? mean practically for how much political independence Bulgaria had? We had very little political independence. Uh, every major decision would be, we had to go to the Soviet embassy to get any major decision put through. So whatever you want to do on a, on a larger scale, if, if it's not approved from from the representative of the Soviet Union, from the, from the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, you couldn't get it through. So very little independence. That's why I told you in the beginning, we were considered to be kind of the next republic to join the union because we were so, so uh, subservient to the union. 
See, if I lived in Bulgaria and I were a Bulgarian patriot, I would shame all these people who are nostalgic for socialism and say, what, you're nostalgic for this, for being a doormat of a larger power? Come on now, Manny. Even if, even if, even if it were the case that we were slightly richer, which we weren't, I mean, you're willing to sell your independence for a, a few extra bucks and a pair of shoes? Come on now. I mean, I, that, that would be the way I would go about it, but – you know, I'm talking to you from half a world away. Yeah, but, you know, there is a trick here. Uh, and that happened not just in Bulgaria, but in other places, for example, in Yugoslavia. Uh, in the later stages of of its demise, the union uh, shifted away, not just the union, but but all, all, all members of that Soviet uh, space uh, started to drift away from, from the pure socialist uh, rhetoric, and they moved very aggressively into nationalistic rhetoric. That's why you kind of, that's why you got the, the wars in Yugoslavia. That's one of the reasons in terms of ideology. The same, the same thing happened here. The, the, the Communist Party in the later, later years of its existence uh, was basically claiming to, to be protecting Bulgaria. And the Bulgarian, Bulgarian nation, Bulgarian traditions. So they uh, kind of, kind of swiftly moved from uh, this socialist, uh, internationalist uh, ideology into pure, pure nationalism. Ah. And uh, one of the, the worst things they did as part of this transition was we had this. Uh, it's called the, and it's in quotes, the Renaissance process, which basically means uh, we have a, a large uh, Muslim minority in Bulgaria because we were part of the Ottoman Empire, and we have a lot of Muslims. So I think. 10 to 15% of the population is Muslim. So what the, the Communist Party decided to do in the late 70s, then again, as a major, major kind of a um, political initiative, was to force Muslims to change their names and their religion. So we, ha- they, we had uh, um, forceful forceful meeting soldiers going into villages um, um, and forcing people to to change their names and their religion. So if you're Mohammed, you should be Momchil. Um, you should change your name to something that is Christian or at least uh, neutral. And uh, we had uh, we had a lot of uh, problems with that. And, and politically, that's still important in Bulgaria. There is a Muslim party in Bulgaria right now, uh, which exists mostly because uh, of the, what people experienced, Mo- Bulgarian Muslims experienced during during that time. So, and that was all part of that nationalistic uh, um, thing that they tried to do when when basically socialism was falling apart. And you need a new ideology. What, what, what are you going to do? Oh, let's let's go to nationalism. Okay, that's all very interesting stuff. Now, he, here it is, 2018, and you were teaching stuff like public choice theory at the university level. Presumably, this would have been borderline unthinkable just uh, you know one lifetime ago, uh, less than that in in Bulgaria. I, I don't know what to say about that other than what kind of examples when illustrating public choice do you draw from the Bulgarian experience or do you? Well, uh, I do use a lot of Bulgarian examples and uh, uh, and I think that uh, you know, if you go to through through the history of the Communist Party, if you go through the history of of the transition period that happened afterwards, you have this plethora of options to just show people how, uh, for example, for example, interested parties can use power to to enrich themselves uh, without that going to benefit without that benefiting other people. So. Um, 
And also, I'm actually, I'm actually very openly libertarian with my students. I, I teach them economics as well. So uh, when we're done with, with basic stuff, uh, say we, we, we go through uh, the Phillips curve or whatever, um, uh, we go into discussions of, of more philosophical uh, questions. For example, is taxation theft? Uh, can we talk about taxation being theft? Uh, can we talk about drug legalization? Can we talk about all these issues that... Um, they, they have their roots in history somewhere, but can we do something about them right now? So um, I think that's that's the, the thing that I'm bringing to the table when go, when it comes to 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 my students. Of course, uh, I'm assistant professor, and uh, my superior uh, is actually one on the, the the guy who kind of introduced libertarianism into Bulgaria. Uh, he had the opportunity to read uh, that stories coming from him to read Mises in uh, locked libraries. He, he studied in Leningrad. So there, if you wanted to get to read Mises, uh, the, the calculation uh, problem debate, for example, uh, you, you have to get special permission to go to a special library, get a key, go read there, and then get out without the book because it was prohibited. It's one of the prohibited books. And you shouldn't read them unless you're at the level where you, you wouldn't be, quote-unquote, tainted by it. So, so it's kind of a, we've moved from that to, to, to a situation where we can openly talk to students uh, what really happened, what, what, how socialism can exist now, what are the vestiges of socialism that we have still today. So yeah, it is, it is a great experience. Have you ever met Yuri Maltsev? I haven't met him. I know of him, and I I've communicated with him a little bit over Facebook. But I know of him. I've I'm actually I'm a huge fan of, of your show. I'm a, I'm a fan of Mises Institute. I like Austrian economics. Uh, when I was a student, I was a student activist back in the day, and I I started the group, and it, I think it's still on Facebook somewhere. It's called Bulgarians for Ron Paul, and I started that group. Oh, that's tremendous, Bulgarians for Ron Paul. That yeah, is- you should, you should, people should check it out. It's super small. I was a student in London back then and I started this kind of a Facebook page and I wanted to promote Ron Paul to Bulgarians and to people who, who who would listen to that. Well look it may be small but it's larger than Bulgarians for Mitt Romney. Oh yeah definitely, definitely. Right so at least there's that. I mentioned Yuri because he says he had a similar experience when reading The Road to Serfdom. He had to be taken to a special library and he had to sign something in which he pledged not to reveal the contents of what he had read. Like he could read it for his scholarly purposes, but he was not to go spreading the ideas to people. Just uh, hard to believe. So you mentioned your your time as a student activist. You were involved at one point with European Students for Liberty. Did you have most of your interaction with folks in Eastern Europe? And what was that experience like? Um there was my, this was the beginning of my activism life, which continues to this day. We do a lot of stuff with, with the Bulgarian Libertarian Society now in Bulgaria. Uh, but, uh, back then I think it was, uh, it was important in many ways, uh, not just for me, but for, for the movement in, in Europe. I think that a lot of good things started thanks to, to European Students for Liberty. Uh, I was involved both in Eastern Europe and in, in Western Europe efforts. At a certain point, I was the chairman of the, of the European branch of Students for Liberty. Uh, and, uh, one of, one of the positive things that happened from it, there were many, but, uh, one of the positive things was the, that we got a lot of local organizations that that followed 
people's involvement in, 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 in ESFL. So you would be a student somewhere, most often actually not in your own country. I was a student in, in London when, when I joined. But when I was done with my studies, I decided to just go back to Bulgaria, find, find my own organization and go, go and teach at university, do activism because we do a lot of that right now and uh, uh, just work for the cause. And that happened to a lot of people. I think there were a lot of people like that from the Czech Republic. Uh, actually, in, in many of the Eastern European countries, we found early on that, that, that uh, Eastern Europeans, uh, actually that was my experience studying in London as well, uh, Eastern Europeans are way more receptive to, to ideas of liberty than in terms of students than, than people in Western Europe. In Western Europe, you have um, all these professors who are or um, communist, you have the media that is left-wing, you have, uh, um, you're bombarded by, by, by statism from everywhere. Well, in Eastern Europe, we've seen the failure of statism, we've seen the failure of socialism, and now the, the, the debate is open. What are better ideas? How can we get better? And if you just say, well, look, well, look what happens with Cuba, look what happens with North Korea, and then compare that to what happens to Hong Kong and Singapore, how did they get uh, rich? Because now, uh, Bulgaria is a poor country compared to many in Europe, and most people would be interested to know how to get rich uh, relatively quickly in, in a generation, in 40 years, in 30 years, because there are, there are ways to do that. And uh, the way, the way to do that is through the free market, through the freest possible market you can get. Uh, and when the debate is open, uh, you can much more easily get people involved. You can much more easily get them to think even because, uh, as someone just told me, uh, libertarianism or liberty, liberty is not much different from common sense. So if you get people to a point where they can use their common sense, you can get them to become more involved in, in causes like the ones you and I share. I have the sense that in Poland, for example, there is a, a lot of pro-American sentiment that derives from their continued opposition to communism. But unfortunately, that pro-American sentiment uh, is very crudely translated into, a, into just being in favor of the American regime, even sometimes it's military adventures. So I'm glad they like free, you know, free markets. I just – it's too bad they, they like Washington, D.C. <laughs> so my question to you is what do you see as uh, trends in Eastern Europe that are to be welcomed and celebrated and what are trends that are causes for concern? Well, um, right now I think one of the positive trends is that we, we, we kind of, we are part of almost all of the Eastern European countries, uh, for, except for Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. We're all part of the EU. And, uh, I think that inside the EU, within the EU, there is a very important struggle going on. And the struggle is for and against federalization. And federalization in, in our case, in the EU case, is not the good thing that it means in the States. Federalization in, uh, in the European Union means more centralization of power. And most of the European, Eastern European countries, uh, are opposed to that, uh, are not happy of, uh, are not happy with with Brussels and Berlin, basically the two power, uh, centers of power in, in in the Union, trying to to, to basically um, create a new super state that is going to be Europe. So th there is this resistance going on. That's the positive trend. The negative trend is that again, I think it's uh, again related to the EU. Uh, we've had this. Uh, 
transfer of money that comes from from the European Union. It, it's called cohesion cohesion funds. They're supposed to. Uh, it's basically richer countries like Germany and the Netherlands giving East, Eastern Europeans money to catch up, which of course you probably already know that doesn't work. And uh, most of this money, it's a lot of money, it's like 3-4% of GDP. And most of this money is used, one, for rent-seeking purposes. So um, the oligarchs, the friends of the current prime minister or president, they get a lot of it. And also uh, the second use of this money is to, to buy votes through projects that people like, uh, for example, build them a stadium. And this money is used... Uh, um, by, by politicians around Eastern Europe. And through this money, they, they, they maintain power longer. And with this maintenance of power comes very, very bad policy. That happens in Bulgaria. Uh, that happens in, uh, in, uh, uh, for example, in some ways in Romania, in, uh, that happens in, in Poland now, in Hungary in a big way, in Slovakia. So you get this EU money. And, and because of that, Politicians stay in power longer. They start doing bad policy, worse than, than than before, because now they they feel empowered. They they feel more stable. They they get to exercise uh, their worst kind of uh, instinct. How is it that somebody, a young person like you in Bulgaria, came to know about all the ideas that you're teaching? I mean, I I know I'm not alone among the folks who uh, listen to the show in being interested in these kinds of origin stories origin stories so mine is uh, mine is complicated but um i had a very good professor at, at university I, I did my bachelor degree in sofia at sofia university so there i got to to have a uh, to have a, i got I, I got a very good professor teaching me who was a free marketer uh, who is actually it turned out he's way more hardcore than i thought uh, later on but yeah i had that initially then uh uh, basically the internet, because through the internet, um, I, I learned about Ron Paul, about the Mises Institute, about all the, all the things that exist out there. And I just started reading, uh, reading, 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 getting more and more interested. I, then I moved to, to London to do my master's degree. And there, um, uh, I got involved in the activist movement. I started a club at, at my university, a student club, uh, and I was actually doing uh, work at a very, very leftist school. It's called uh, the School of Africa, uh, African and uh, Oriental Studies at University of London. And I was there because I wanted to do a, my, my master's thesis on Hong Kong. But it turned out that uh, SOAS uh, is extremely leftist. It's the worst SJW uh eco-communist things you can think of. It was, it was very bad. And I, and I, and I started the, the, um, uh, libertarian society there. And, uh, then I went to a couple of, uh, of, um, similar events to, to what we did at, at the university. Then I joined Students for Liberty. I was really involved with Students for Liberty for a couple of years. Then I came back home with the firm decision that Whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to be working, doing most of my work uh, related to, to the liberty movement. And, and I wanted to, to, to establish um, um, an activist grassroots organization that also has a community. So my idea was to build a libertarian community here in Bulgaria. And that began in 2013, and now we are kind of five, four or five years old. And keep going. We're, keep, we're still going. Can you share with us your thoughts on the controversy throughout Europe surrounding migrant populations? 
Uh, that's a difficult topic. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. And I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to get you fired. I just want to know oh, no. what's going you, on. You, you can't get me fired because I, I work for my own organization, so that's not happening. Oh, okay. Well, that's, <laughs> that's even better. <laughs> yeah. So, no, because, because it's a difficult topic. So, first of all, uh, I don't know what, what Westerners, because maybe we should establish this, uh, we, we consider people from Western Europe and the state as Westerners. So, this is the West. We are the East. It's not the Far East that we consider the East. It's us that is the East. It's a kind of a interesting distinction. So we, we, uh, I don't know what people know of, of Eastern Europe, uh, Bulgaria, Russia, etc. I actually speak Russian, so I'm kind of familiar with Russian as well. Uh, uh, but, uh, first of all, uh, in some ways, uh, Bulgarians and Eastern Europeans are not very accepting to foreigners. Um, Let's put it this way. I wouldn't say xenophobic, xenophobic but uh, the mood in Eastern Europe is no foreigners, especially foreigners from Muslim countries or from somewhere else in Asia. It's just the way it is. Um, it might be controversial for, for, for an American audience, but that, that's, that's a fact. People here don't, don't like immigrants at all. Uh, so... You, you, it's impossible if you're a politician in Eastern Europe to, uh, run on a platform that is going to allow, uh, immigration from Muslim countries to come in. Actually, if you, if you try to, um, write people's fears, because there are a lot of, uh, I would say irrational fears when it comes to foreigners from, from Muslim countries. Uh, but if you are a politician using that, uh, as kind of your platform, you can, we can get, we can win a lot of support. Uh, case in point, uh, Mr. Orban in Hungary, but also everywhere else, um, in Eastern Europe. You just, you just cannot allow them, allow immigrants to come to Eastern Europe. Uh, and it, here comes the caveat. Uh, they don't want to stay in Eastern Europe. If you're a, if you're an immigrant coming from Syria, from Afghanistan, from anywhere else, you don't want to stay in Bulgaria. Actually, uh, your, your, one of your major tasks when crossing the border and then through the territory, going to Western Europe is to try and avoid being registered here. Because if you, then if you get caught in Germany or in Sweden, uh, they'll transfer you back to Bulgaria. And Bulgaria is not a coveted destination. Let's put it this way. But on the other hand, as you said, it has an existing uh, Muslim population of long standing. That, that wouldn't hold any appeal for migrants. Oh well, uh, I would say that uh, I, I'm not that familiar with the the well, what our own Muslims think about uh, immigrants. But I would I would I would bet money that they don't want them either. So uh, it's, it's just different cultures. I think that uh, it's kind of a, uh, a leftist would say it's racist, but I think that people don't understand that, uh, that Muslims differ a lot. So if you're a Syrian Muslim, you wouldn't just say, oh, this guy is also Muslim from Afghanistan, so I'll be very happy to live with them. So uh, Muslims also differ and they don't, they, sometimes they don't, they don't want to mix either. So I, I don't think that our Muslim population would say, yeah, let's, let's bring them. But uh, to, to stress the point, uh, the, the most important reason why, why, why we are avoided Eastern European countries, especially Bulgaria, why we are avoided by, by, by immigrants is that uh, it's just, it's a poor country, poorer than, uh, than Germany. And we do not have uh, uh, a, a system, uh, a welfare system that is going to support them. And yeah, and basically you have to come here. People are not going to be uh, immediately welcoming. And you also have to work really hard because welfare system is 
kind of non-existent in reality. If I were just reading the news and, and listening to what Bulgarian politicians were saying, what reasons would I discover for why Bulgaria is a poor country? Coming from a politician's mouth, I mean. Okay, uh, well, um, the, the left, so the Communist Party in Bulgaria never dissolved. It, it uh, uh, changed its form into the Socialist Party, basically changed its name. It was the Communist Party, now it's the Socialist Party, and it still exists, and it's the second largest party right now. And they did have uh, uh, prime ministers and governments in the years following the, the fall of the system. So they still exist, and, and their narrative is that, you know, um, something happened, uh, the Americans uh, tricked uh, Gorbachev to... Uh, to basically um, dissolve the Soviet Union, the system, and now um, why we live so, uh, so why we are so poor is because we didn't keep the government into the economy. We shouldn't have privatized uh, the factories. We should have kept the government involved in every aspect of our lives. So that's their story. Uh, the majority of the other politicians just say uh, the previous politicians were very bad, and they. Uh, were fraudsters, they stole money, they were corrupt. I'm not going to be corrupt, so pick me. Uh, it's not a very sophisticated message, but it's basically uh, what they say. We are poor because uh, the previous politician was very corrupt. And it's just this cycle of trying to fight corruption with more government that actually creates more corruption. And this is one of the, the messages we are trying to push through is that if you want to get rid of, of corruption, you should get rid of government. If you don't have a government bureaucrat or a politician uh, uh, gatekeeping uh, something, uh, a license or, or, uh, um, or a regulatory agency uh, that comes and asks you for money, uh, you wouldn't have corruption at all. If you have the, the market regulating uh, industry, if you would have... Um, other systems different from, from welfare, for example, mutual aid, et cetera. You wouldn't have people using uh, welfare systems to, to, um, to gain votes. So basically, if you want to get rid of corruption, you should, you should get rid of government. Yeah, well, that's what we'd like them to start thinking about, of course. But it, it always winds up being, I'll be different from the previous guy. Like the problem is the guy and not the, not the system. Given your experience with European Students for Liberty, what would you say, in your opinion, are the strengths and weaknesses of the current generation of European libertarians? And of course, saying European libertarians is a ridiculous uh, generalization because I'm sure Polish libertarians and French libertarians are quite different. So maybe that is part of your answer. Well, I would say that uh, one of the one of the big issues I think in in the movement in general, I wouldn't say just European, is that. Um, uh, we're not trying enough to go outside. And what I mean by go outside is to, to uh, stop producing policy papers all the time uh, and uh, just, or maybe just writing articles, but to go out, meet people, um, do, uh, do uh, if you want to uh, do protests, uh, we do a lot of them in Bulgaria for very libertarian causes, uh, meet people uh, face to face, uh, try to build communities, organizations that are based on people actually having communication with each other. And uh, I've seen many, many attempts at this fail in the past, uh, especially in Western Europe. Uh, but, but 
I think this is the model that we should follow up with when we have a kind of a vi- I think we have a kind of a vibrant uh, European wide student movement. But then what happens is that uh, we kind of lose the next step. We don't have a grown up organization to join. You don't have a place where even if you don't want to be a full time activist or a politician, uh, you can go and just be part of this uh, libertarian community that uh, fights for certain certain policies, has conferences or, uh, you know, someday prepares um, your country or your city or your town for the time when when Blue Frontiers or some seasteading or private city comes in and they want to you know do something very interesting there, have a community to defend that idea uh, when the local politicians decide to to overtake it or stop it from happening. So yeah, basically, basically my 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 thoughts are that we're focusing way too much on 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 this high level policymaking part, although I think it, we still need to do it, uh, but, but do it differently. Do it in a way that um, would put us in a situation where we can expand in numbers and in, in, in building organizations that can, I, I don't like saying it, but kind of mimic what the left is doing in, in other places. The left is not afraid to go out and speak its mind. Uh, the left is not afraid to, to, to go out and protest, uh, bother politicians build their own communities, build their own communes, if you want to. Uh, a lot of libertarians are kind of, af- all around the world, are kind of afraid of that. And I, I think that Brazilians, for example, are a good example of how, how we can achieve that. Yeah. The Brazilian movement is very strong because it has a, a powerful grassroots uh, component in it. Well, I suppose then that the Bulgarian Libertarian Society that you founded was intended uh, – in good measure to fill this gap that you identified where I graduate from college and I had a libertarian group then, but then there's nothing to graduate to. There is no successor organization for adults. Exactly. Although, although we also, we also have, we, we do both. We do both university and after university. So it's the same organization. So if you find us uh, at school, you will, you can be with us up until you retire. So we basically do it all. Uh, but that's because in Bulgaria, we didn't have the, the, the previous organizations. Elsewhere, I think that this model can be copied. And that, that's one of the important things I wanted to say to you today. This model is totally copyable. It's nothing that there are special things that help us in Bulgaria, but also there are uh, other circumstances that kind of prevent us from doing uh, a better job. It's, it's all, it's, it's, it all depends, but. But I think that the model itself is very much copyable. And uh, one of the, the important things is to avoid uh, making it into a political thing. Because uh, as, uh, as I've heard on your podcast, uh, um, for example, the Libertarian Party in the U.S. Uh, struggles with that as well. So you don't, you don't want to get into the Libertarian Party problem that, that you have in, in, in the States, for example. Is any of the stuff that you're doing – Something that you could link an English-speaking audience to? I fear not. Uh, very little. Uh, actually, we, we got a lot of help from another uh, American organization when we started, especially. It's called the Atlas Network, and I would promote them uh, on your show for sure because they do a good, especially good job uh, in Europe and in Eastern Europe. Uh, so there you have... A um, couple of things. If you if you go to the Atlas Network uh, and uh, search Bulgarian Libertarian Society, they have a couple of articles on our stuff. For example, we recently had a 
big fight with the government on 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 in the war on cash. They wanted to limit the 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 threshold for for cash transactions. We had a huge public uh, kind of scuffle with 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 the government, and we won. And they didn't. Uh, lower the threshold and it's very detailed uh, um, kind of an expose of that exists on Atlas site but but most of our stuff unfortunately are in Bulgarian uh, and uh, but I would be very happy to talk to people and uh, and explain and and tell them what happens uh, here in Bulgaria uh, but yeah if you want to read something go to Atlas Network website okay we'll do that well Stoyan I appreciate your time today it's great to find out what's going on in other parts of the world. And um, I'm. It's, it's also great to talk to somebody as young as you are who's out there teaching and in the midst of the of the fight. And it's, uh, it's great to hear you're doing such good work. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. I'm a huge fan of your show. So this is a kind of a dream come true. <laughs> ah, that's very kind of you. Thanks so much. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for today. Now, tomorrow it is war and foreign policy on deck. And then over the weekend, I got a bonus episode coming at you from Ben Settle. A lot of you folks who listen have started to follow Ben, and I have been thanked many times for introducing people to Ben Settle, and I'm very glad that Bob Bly introduced me to Ben Settle because my life's been a lot happier uh, ever since I started reading him, and he has just tremendous insights on many, many questions. I'll just leave it at that. Trust me, you want to listen to an episode with Ben Settle. So that's a bonus one coming up this weekend. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.